0: What I'd like to talk to you about this morning is God-pleasing worship, God-pleasing worship. Matthew chapter 21 and beginning with verse, with verse 12. Here Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words, Jesus went into the temple and throughout all those buying and selling he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves he said to them it is written my house will be called the house of prayer but you are making it a den of thieves the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonders that he did and children and the children shouting in the temple hosanna to the son of david they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read? You have, you have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them, went out of the city to Bethany, and spent the night there. Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. At once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, How did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is challenging. Lord, your word speaks to our lives and you reveal to us what true worship is really all about. Lord, I pray that as we think about worship today, as we think about God-pleasing worship as the temple of the living God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, that each of us are who have trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, I pray that you would lead us towards God-honoring Christ-exalting god honoring christ exalting transformative, heart-engaged, spirit-filled worship as a church. Lord, I pray that this worship would not only be honoring to you, but Lord, also would be reaching the nations with the good news that Jesus saves. And so Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What does it really mean to worship God? What is that really talking about? If you look at that particular word, that word, worship it actually comes from an old english derived word you can think of it in terms of worthship it actually comes from the english word worthscipe which just means worship what are you ascribing worth to the greatest worth in your life the greatest worth in your soul that thing that you cannot quit thinking about that thing which you truly love with your soul with your heart with your mind with your strength that thing that you that thing that you give all of your energy to that is what worship the number one thing in your life only one can hold first place in your life that is true worship it includes music it includes what we do on sunday morning but is expansive beyond what we do on sunday morning to include all of life it's not as if we began worship at eight o'clock this morning and we will end it around nine o'clock and we will not worship again until next week no Really, all of your life, Monday through Sunday, is an act of worship to King Jesus. I love what D.A. Carson says about worship. He says, worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, or sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their Creator, God precisely because he is worthy delightfully so ascribing honor and worth to their creator God that is what worship is God you are worth it you are worthy and so I align all of my life all of my priorities all of my actions all of my reactions I align them all under your perfect will under your gaze under your loving sovereign goodness Jonathan Edwards about worship said the following, he said, Who will deny that true religion consists in great measure in vigorous and lively actings of the inclination and will of the soul or the fervent exercises of the heart? That religion which God requires and will accept does not consist, listen, in weak, dull, and lifeless wishes raising us but a little above a state of indifference." That is Jonathan Edwards, the preacher of the Great Awakening, said that your heart, your affections, your passions, your soul should be engaged in worship. Worship is not just singing a song and thinking about lunch, (laughs) but worship is engaging all of the affections bending them towards the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, asking Him to move mountains in your life and then going full of the Spirit into a lost and dying world and worshiping Him by delighting in Jesus among the nations that delight among so many other trivial realities that cannot save. That is, is true worship spirit and in truth scripture saturated god oriented passion worshiping jesus with our heart soul mind and strength we come to this passage here in matthew where it's kind of a flashback from where we were at last week last week with easter sunday we were talking about the death and resurrection of our christ now we're going back in a way we're going back to the beginning of that week how did we get there How did we get to the cross? How did we get to the resurrection? And so in this section of Matthew, Matthew 21 through 27, we're going to lead up to the cross and show what were the events, what were the things that happened in that week prior to Christ dying on the cross that got him to that moment. Here in this passage, Jesus is entering into the temple of God. And as the king enters into his temple, he's expecting to find worship there, but instead he finds a religious circus. He's expecting to find true worship, but what he finds is a bazaar. He's expecting to find true worship, but what he finds is a lot of outward show, but no transformation. And in this passage, we learn a lot about what true worship really is all about. What is true worship? I want to give you six attributes of true worship today. But before we get there, I need to even prove that this applies to true worship in the New Testament church because Jesus is entering into the Old Testament temple. And we know this old temple no longer exists after AD 70. It was closed. It was destroyed. The Romans came in and shut it down. So we need to understand something of the old temple versus the new temple. How can I even apply this passage to New Testament worship? Christians, this side of the cross. Before we get to... What this tells us about worship, we need to know something about the temple. We know that Jesus predicted that this temple that he is walking into at this moment would one day cease operation. Would one day cease to be the center of worship in God's economy after the death and resurrection of Christ. This particular temple no longer had any purpose in god's economy why do i say that is because remember in matthew chapter 27 verses 50 and 51 what happened in those two verses those two verses it says this but jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom the earth quaked and the rocks were split I love the way it says it in the King James Version. It says, And the veil of the temple was rent in twain. (laughs) Torn in two. And from that moment on, because of the death of Jesus, we have full access into the Holy of Holies to have a deep and vibrant personal relationship with God. And so where is the temple in the rest of the New Testament? That temple is gone do we still have a temple? Is there a temple in the New Testament? Yes, there is. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, it says this, do you you yourselves know that, or don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God lives in you? In the New Testament, we know that the temple is not a place. It's individuals who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and the Holy Spirit now dwells within us in the same way that the Shekinah glory descended upon the tabernacle, descended upon the temple in the Old Testament. When you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells in you. What an incredible, hopeful reality to know that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. He seals us until the day of redemption. And so now we are the place of worship. Worship happens wherever we go as believers in a way because all of life becomes a sacrifice of worship living our lives to God. But not only individually in the New Testament are we described as the temple of the living God, but collectively, we as believers, if you read it in the original language, many of the verses that are talking about us as the indwelling temple of the Holy Spirit are in the plural. They sh- they're in the y'all form in Greek. So y'all are the temple, yes, individually, but also collectively. We see this clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. It says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So, right there in the passage where Paul is speaking, talking to the Ephesians about the church, he is describing the church using temple language. So, in the New Testament, individually, we are the temple of the living God. And then also collectively, when we as the church gather together, whether we gather together in a building, in a field, in a house church, it does not matter wherever the church of god gathers where the people of god gather together in unity that is the temple of god offering acceptable sacrifices of worship into his name and so individually and collectively we are called as the new testament people of god to be the temple of god Now, in this passage where Jesus is walking into the temple of the Old Testament, that temple of the transition period between before the death of Christ and after the death and resurrection of Jesus. What does he have to say about the temple? And then how can we apply it to the New Testament temple today, the temple of the living God? What do I have to learn and you have to learn individually as the temple? And what do we as a church need to apply from this passage about the temple to our worship in 2021 and beyond? So let me give you six principles from this passage on god-pleasing worship that apply to that day but also applies to us in our day number one is this god seeks a prayerful people if jesus were to walk into the temple right now we know the temple is not a building it's a gathering it just happens to be right here because this is where we are gathering at this particular moment and in our hearts and lives, as the temple of living, of the living God, what God seeks in our hearts, in our lives, in our souls, is a prayerful people. The temple, if you understood it in this day, was organized into sections. And so there was the outer courts that was for the Gentiles. And each of the sections, it would be kind of like a, a triangle or a pyramid. It wasn't a pyramid in shape, but in in overall design and order who was allowed in each particular section of the temple. It was more and more restrictive the further you got into the temple. So the outer courts, anybody could be there. The Gentiles could be there. Then you go a little bit further in past a particular gate. Only the Jews could be there. Another gate, only males could be there. Only the priests could be there. And then another place in the inner sanctum of the temple was the Holy of Holies and only one priest once per year could go there more and more restrictive. Jesus is going out here to, he is walking into the temple, he is going into the outer court of the Gentiles. That's where all of this takes place. He's going into the outer court of the Gentiles, and what does he find there in the outer court? He finds a bazaar. He finds a circus. And in that very place, which was meant for a house of prayer for all of the nations to gather to pray to God. The God-honoring Gentiles to come together with the Jewish people to pray and and offer supplication and offer their heart to God. There were money changers shouting. They were making profits, uh, profits on currency exchange. They were selling animals. There was loud ruckus there. There was animals Making their noises, cattle mooing. There was doves tweeting, whatever they do, (laughs) singing. (laughs) And all kinds of noise. Hey, I got a better deal for you over here. You think they've got good money exchange over there? Check out my rates. You should come on over here. You know, this was a new invention. It was the high priest of that particular time, Caiaphas. If you look into the ancient records, Caiaphas was the one who allowed this to happen. Before Caiaphas' time, they were outside of the temple. Caiaphas is the one who allowed them in there. And Jesus is coming into the temple and seeing this place that was to be dedicated for the prayers of the Gentiles, and it become a house of commerce. A house of want, I want, I want, I want, I want. In came the greed and out went the prayer. Let me say that again. In came the greed. Out went the prayer. How can you effectively pray in the middle of a busy bazaar? How can you effectively pray in the middle of a circus. How does Jesus respond in that moment? In righteous anger, Jesus goes into the temple and he throws them out. The word in the original language is the word ekbalo. It's the same word that is used for when Jesus casts out demons. This is intense. Jesus ekbaloed those people he cast them out. He kicks over the tables. He opens the cages, birds flying everywhere, kicks out the animals, and tells them, this house shall be a house of prayer. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7 says this, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The very place, the only place where Gentiles could come and seek God had been turned into a place of selling. Had been turned into a place of commerce. They had forgotten the purpose. They had forgotten the plot of what they were to be. Let me ask you this question. Has commerce and convenience Displace the place of prayer in your life? Has commerce and convenience, has greed, has stuff, has this heart of I want, I want, I want, I want. And you know what happens after you get, 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 and get? You have to maintain, 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 and fix, and fix, and want more, and want more, because there's more commercials than somebody else trying to sell you something. And in our world today, in our souls, is this this particular temple. We must be very careful and aware of how our desires for stuff can choke out the riches of knowing Christ and His kingdom and exercising mountain-moving faith in prayer because a culture in a world that thinks we doesn't, don't need much or that we have all of our stuff, desires met through our own means doesn't feel much need for prayer because we can provide for ourselves. And so here in this passage, both individually and corporately, is prayer the lifeblood of our worship. And as we begin gathering together again, I want to encourage you to be people of prayer. You don't have to wait for my permission to gather together with people to pray. You don't have to wait for the pastors of the church to put together groups of people for you to get together and pray. I'm always amazed when people call me, hey pastor, is it okay if I get together with my friends and pray? Um, Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) Please get together and pray. And yes, we're going to be getting together more and more corporately to pray as well. Time's focused on just prayer as a church. But let me encourage you, get together in small groups of two or three or four or five. Share your needs together. Pray powerful, God-exalting, big kinds of prayers that only God can answer. Be praying for God to impact a generation for Him. All right, number one, God seeks a prayerful people. Number two, God seeks a repentant people. God seeks a repentant People. Jesus not only reminded them that his house was to be a house of prayer, there in verse 13 of Matthew 21, but he says there, You have made it a den of robbers, you've made it a den of thieves. Now, what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is doing a mashup of Old Testament quotations. He pulls one from Isaiah and he pulls one from Jeremiah, and is mashing them together. That part about the den of thieves, the den of robbers, is not Isaiah. That is Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, verse 11. And even though Jesus only quoted just a few words from that chapter, it was customary in Jesus' day, it was tradition in Jesus' day, that he could take a, a few words from a chapter and be referring to the whole thing. He could take a few words from a chapter and be referring to that whole section of a prophet or a psalm or something in the Old Testament. I want you to hold your place right there. We don't do this often. I want you to hold your place right there in Matthew chapter 21. Maybe you need to put your Bible bookmark there. And I want you to turn back to Jeremiah chapter 11. I want you to look back to Jeremiah chapter 11. It's right after the book of Isaiah. After Psalms. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Song of Solomon, eventually you come to Isaiah, and Jeremiah chapter 11. I want to read verses 1 through 11 so you can get what Jesus really is saying here. What is he really getting at by quoting this? You've made it into a den of robbers. And what does this have to do with repentance? Look back at verse 1. Let's read verses 1 through 11. He says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the words of this covenant and tell them to the men of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem. Tell them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let a curse be on the man who does not obey the words of this covenant which I commanded your ancestors when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. I declared, obey me and do everything that I command you and you will be my people and I will be your God in order to establish the oath that I swore to your ancestors to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is today. I answered, amen, Lord. Then the the Lord said to me, proclaim all of these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Obey the words of this covenant and carry them out. For I strongly warned your ancestors when I brought them out of the land of Egypt until today, warning them time and again, obey me. Yet they would not obey or pay attention. Each one followed the stubbornness of his own evil heart. So I brought them on them all the curses of this covenant because they had not done what I commanded them to do. The Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been discovered among the men of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem. They have returned to the iniquities of their fathers who refused to obey my words and have followed other gods to worship them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah broke my covenant I made with their ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I am about to bring on them a disaster that they cannot escape. They will cry out to me, but they will not What am I doing? I'm reading Jeremiah chapter 11. (laughs) It's actually Jeremiah chapter 7. Go back to Jeremiah 7. Sorry for that. You know, sometimes I told you I can make mistakes. That was really good reading. (laughs) But halfway through, I'm like, where's the part that I was wanting to get to? (laughs) Go back to Jeremiah 7. Sorry about that. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 8, and verse 11 is what he's quoting there. Jeremiah chapter 7. Goodness, read the wrong passage there. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 7. That was really good, by the way. Read that later. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 1, reading through verse 11. Here we go. This is the part. He says here, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. That part was the same. Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord, and there call out this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Correct your ways and your actions. Can you hear the similarity to chapter 11, though? And I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust in deceitful words chanting. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly towards one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves, I will allow you to live in this place, the land that I gave to your ancestors long ago and forever. But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to? Bail and follow other gods that you have not known. Then do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, We are rescued so that we can continue doing all these detestable acts. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers? There it is. In your view. Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. Alright, there it is. Same theme repeated again in Jeremiah 11. But you see it there in Jeremiah chapter 7. The problem is is they were focusing and thinking that their outward religion was going to save them. That if they go through the motions that that was sufficient and pleasing unto God. And what Jesus is doing here in the temple is he's showing And then also here in a moment by the fig tree, outward going through the motions religion is insufficient to save. It cannot save your soul. If all you do is go to church and sing the songs, because that's all you've always done. That's not true religion. That's not saving faith. Saving faith involves repentance. Although, what uh, Douglas Sean O'Donnell said is his commentary in this passage. He says, Understand what Jesus is saying. Thieves don't do their robbing in the den, rather, their den is their safe hideout. So here Jesus is not merely denouncing all the buying and selling. Rather, he is denouncing the false security of those who come into the temple to offer a sacrifice for sin without the fruits of repentance. The temple, Jesus is saying, has denigrated into a hideout where people think they can find God's fellowship and forgiveness no matter how they live. It's become a hideout where people think they can enjoy God's fellowship and forgiveness no matter how they live. I wonder if that not only describes the temple of Jesus' day, but it describes much of the temple of today. If Jesus were to come in and look at our worship, I wonder if one of the things that He would say is repent because your life during the week does not correspond to your confession. That he would say you need to apply the things that you hear on Sunday to the rest of your life. True worship is this. It's life transformation that responds to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within his temple. It's not just outward show seeking to impress but it is real change. Life change. Change that can only be brought by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. The problem with the temple is that it become a place where people went through the motions but experienced no real life change. Is it possible that we as the temple of God also need to repent? Where we as the temple of God go through the motions, a certain order of worship, a certain set of songs, a certain pattern, thinking that the pattern and going through the motions and the pattern itself hides our lack of repentance and faith. Mountain moving faith. Are we loving the alien, the fatherless, and the widow? Those are the realities that they were not doing. They were going with all of the outward religious show, but not really being a transformative element in their community, bringing the good news of God to their community. Are we bringing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in practical ways to our community? That would be evidence of real repentance. Not just not doing sin, but also doing the deeds of righteousness. Loving people loving God. Are we truly loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or are we simply outwardly religious people who enjoy the cultural and political entrapments of churchianity in our country? What's the application? I want to encourage you, don't be satisfied with churchianity. What do I mean by that? Outward show of religion but no real life change and no real helping people. We as a people need to repent. Repentance is true worship. Number three, what else does God seek? God seeks a compassionate people. God seeks a compassionate people. Don't miss that there in the temple. In verse 14, it says, The blind and the lame came to him where? In the temple, and he healed them. The blind and the lame were welcomed by Jesus there in the midst of the temple. Needy people, people who could not help themselves, were not rejected by Jesus, were not afraid of Jesus, but they were drawn to Jesus. In fact, it was exactly the opposite of of the religious people in that day they did not feel comfortable to go to him go to them they had nothing to offer them in that moment in fact they were kept at an arm's length in that day but here in this moment they are drawn to jesus they love jesus they are brought in by jesus needy souls are drawn to christ let me ask you as a christians by your words and your actions are needy souls drawn to jesus or are they repelled by him Are they drawn to Christ, or are they repulsed by Jesus? It's interesting that in this passage, Jesus' anger is directed towards the outwardly religious, but the needy soul felt welcome to the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. They felt welcomed and comfortable around him, knowing that in Jesus they would find true life change. They were beggars. They realized they brought nothing to the table, and they realized that if they were going to have anything in this life, it was going to be completely dependent upon God to provide. It's that attitude of humility that recognizes that we truly bring nothing to the table but totally dependent upon Jesus. Jesus is demonstrating that his people should be a compassionate people, a welcoming people, a people where it is okay not to be okay, but we we don't have to pretend here. But at the same time, we bring people to Jesus knowing that in Christ is real life-transforming power that can transform your life where yeah it's okay not to be okay here but we have the answer to where you can experience real transformation real transforming power a lack of prayer and repentance produces a compassionless person and a lack of prayer and repentance produces a church without wonder working power these two things go together no prayer no repentance compassion goes out the window We no longer care about people. We only care about ourselves. And the same thing happens in a church. A lack of prayer and repentance produces a church without wonder working power. How did the chief priests and the scribes respond? It says that they were angry with him. Verse 15 When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, they were indignant and said to him, They were angry with him. And they said to him, Do you hear what these kids are saying? Can you believe this? Remember, Jesus is now healing on Monday. All of these events are happening on Monday. The religious leaders had already criticized Jesus for healing on the Sabbath day. Don't heal on the Sabbath. Come back another day and heal then. Here is Jesus healing on another day. They're still mad at him. The issue was never about the Sabbath day. The issue was about hearts devoid of prayer, repentance, and compassion. Number four, God seeks a cross-generational, Christ-centered people. God seeks a cross-generational, Christ-centered people. We see that. When the children are crying out to Jesus in the temple, they're shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. In verse 15, verse 16, it says, and, and, he said, and they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. They were quote, Jesus there is quoting Psalm 8:2. You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. What is Jesus doing here? This psalm in the Old Testament is about praising Yahweh for the pre- in the presence of enemies and even how praise, it talks about how praise raises a stronghold against the enemy. Here in what Jesus is saying here, it's really incredible. Jesus is taking a psalm that is about praising Yahweh, the infants and children praising Yahweh, and he applies it to himself. Right there he is showing how our worship should be Christ-centered. And he refuses to silence the song of the next generation who are worshiping him properly. It's very interesting here in this passage that the content of the children's songs made the religious people angry. The content of the next generation's songs angered people now yes they were christ-centered scripture saturated utterly important but at the same time jesus cared that the next generation would raise up a shout and a song when the previous generation was silent and critical I think there is much for us to learn even in this passage about how god seeks a cross-generational worship of all people living out a heart for worshiping jesus and giving honor to christ in our church our heart should be that every generation worships god do you know one of our challenges as a church let's just be real Our median age as a church is somewhere in the 60s. Whereas the median age of the Tri-Cities is about 32. Our hearts should be broken. And I think this relates to what's coming here in this passage about praying mountain-moving prayers. Our hearts should be broken over the fact that a generation is not worshiping God as they ought to and that is outside of the church. In fact, we're not talking about nameless people. We're talking about people that we know. We're talking about our children. We're talking about your grandchildren who are not worshiping God as they ought. We ought to be a house of worship for all generations to worship God together. Are we going to be a people who will worship God with robust, theologically passionate and accurate, congregationally singable, but a song of all generations at the same time? Will we be a people who will do that? Or will we be a grumbly people focusing rather on criticism rather than Christ exaltation? so let me ask ourselves are we a church that is cross-generational that finds our unity in our christ-centeredness are we a church where younger folk can learn how to sing old songs in a new way and where older folk can learn how to sing new songs that are theologically sound and christ exalting Will we be a people who seek a cross-generational, Christ-centered worship? Number five, God seeks a fruitful people. Jesus goes out of the temple and spends the night in Jerusalem in the neighboring town of Bethany. As he's walking back to Jerusalem in the morning, he is hungry. At that moment, he goes to sleep he wakes up hungry jesus is hungry jesus is fully god he is fully man he goes out to a fig tree he sees that he does not have any figs on it and he curses the fig tree and it dies and some people reading this passage criticize jesus because they think jesus is just angry and he's having a bad day (laughs) what jesus is doing this moment is not just having a bad day Jesus is acting out a particular parable that speaks something to the temple there in Jerusalem. These two passages are always connected in the book, in the Gospels. So what is Jesus doing here with the fig tree? It would have been in the month of April. And in the month of April, normally you would see fig trees would have all of their leaves on them at this moment. And if you saw a fig tree in bloom at or with its leaves on it in April, you would also you should be able to find on the fig tree a certain edible leaf called a pagim. You should be able to go up to that tree. While that's not the fruit, that's not the fig, there was an edible leaf on the tree at that time. You should be able to pluck that leaf and eat it, and it should be able to satisfy you until you could have a better meal. At this moment in April, Jesus sees that this tree has a lot of leaves on it, has a lot of outward show on it. If you just look at the outside, it looks really, really good, but when you get up to the tree, it offers absolutely nothing that can satisfy Satisfy the hunger of a hungry soul. A tree that should have fruit on it is absolutely barren of anything. And so Jesus at that moment curses the fig tree and it dies. What is the point? You can probably tell what the point is. What we learn from this passage is that the green leaves of our Outward religious practices cannot cover a fruitless life. The green leaves of our outward look good on the outside. Religious practices cannot cover a fruitless life. Let me press in on that a little bit and apply it to the modern temple, the temple of the New Testament, the leaf of baptism, the leaf of church membership. The leaf of going through the motions. The leaf of 30 years ago, I prayed a prayer, but I have done nothing since. No life transformation. No love for Jesus. No love for God. None of these outward observances can hide the nakedness of a fruitless life from an all-seeing God. Jesus comes to his temple And he expects fruit, and all he finds is all of this outward show, but nothing can that can nourish a sin sick world and a world that is famished for God, that is famished for life-transforming power. So let me ask you: are you a fruitful Christian and are we a fruitful church? Finally, number six. God seeks people with faith in a mountain-moving God. God seeks people with faith in a mountain-moving God. The disciples are stunned at this moment at what happened to the fig tree. How did you do that? How did you do that? They keep asking Jesus, and apparently they had understand what Jesus had meant by this parable of the fig tree, this enacted-out parable of the temple and the fruitlessness of an outward show of religion how did you do that jesus replies if you had faith then you can tell this mountain be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will be done if you believe whatever you if you believe you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer now we know clearly in this passage that this is not a supporting statement for the healthy wealthy gospel That you can have whatever you want as long as you believe it enough. And so believe for a million dollars and you can have it. Why do I know that? It's because the disciples had desires that are coming up that they've already had that Jesus didn't answer. In fact, he criticized them for them. What were the desires I'm talking about? I want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And they argued about it. Why didn't they just name it and claim it? Jesus criticized them for it. So just because we have a desire doesn't mean we name it and claim it. (laughs) The Scripture teaches that our desires need to be within accordance of the will of God and the Word of God. And so when we pray, we pray according to His will. We pray according to Scripture. We pray according to God's purposes in the Bible. But do you know what my concern is for us as a people Compared to my time in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, in that particular context, it's ground zero for the healthy, wealthy gospel movement. It all started there. And it is saturated with that. Had to talk about it frequently. I don't encounter it nearly as much here in the Northwest. Do you know what I think we need to do more of, though? I think we need to ask greater things. From God. I don't think our problem is asking amiss. I think our problem is that we're not asking enough. Is that we're not spending time praying big, mountain moving, transformative prayers for a church, for a region, for a generation, for a world. Are we believing and praying for things? that were god to answer it would be evidence that only god could do such a thing are we praying for things that are beyond our own abilities to answer if god were to answer all of our prayers from last week how many people would be healed how many people would be saved how many nations how many unreached people groups would be converted if God were to answer all of our prayers and say yes to everything we prayed in last week, what would happen? Are they the kind of prayers that would transform a community, transform a nation, transform a generation? Would the government change? Would our society change? Would our culture change? Would a generation change? Would a church be filled? What would happen? If those things aren't happening, then maybe we need to dream more. And we need to dream God-sized dreams that believe God for big things according to His Word for a nation, for a generation, for an unreached world and begin praying, God, there's mountains in my life, there's mountains in this community, there's mountains in this world and only you can move them. The kind of temple that pleases God is a temple that believes God for big things for nation-transforming realities and a movement of God among a generation of people. Let me ask you, what are you praying for? And if Jesus were to come into the temple of your life, what would he see? And what would he do? And what would he challenge you with? What would he say? Let me encourage you to bow your head and close your eyes with me. And I want you to do some business with God here for a few moments. I want to ask yourself, you as the temple of the living God, as a believer, are you a prayerful person? Is there an area in your life that needs repentance? Repentance isn't just something we do once, it's something we begin doing when we first follow Christ. What do you need to repent of? Is there evidence of repentance in your life? Are you compassionate? Have you had compassion on those who are around you? Is there someone in your life that you need to show compassion and love to, first through prayer and then by action? Have you made any efforts to cross generations? For the younger, let me encourage you, have you made any efforts to hear the wisdom of those who are older than you? And for those who are older, have you made any efforts to reach out to bring wisdom to the younger generation? Are you Christ-centered? Is your life bearing fruit for the gospel? How about your prayer life? If God were to answer all of your prayers that you prayed in the last week, what would change about our church? What would change about your life group? What would change about a generation? What would change about a nation? What would change about lost people? What would change about a lost world? Anything? Or is our heart a lot like the bazaar that Jesus found on that day? too cluttered to have mountain-moving experiences with Him. Let me encourage you to give those things to the Lord Jesus today. Let me pray. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. But let me encourage you during this time to do business with God. And if you aren't the temple of the living God, if you never trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, let me encourage you. You can know Christ. You can be full of His Spirit today. Trust in Jesus Christ as, this, as Savior and Lord. Let's pray together. We'll stand and we'll sing. Father, Lord, we come to you today. And Lord, we thank you for this word. Lord, it's a challenging word, a challenging passage. We shouldn't expect anything else. The, the overall tone of this passage is Jesus went into the temple and he kicked over tables and he cursed the fig tree. It ought to, in our day, prick us a little bit. It ought to examine the rooms of our hearts and to show us areas in our lives where maybe in our own souls, maybe in our own heart, maybe in our own church, maybe you need to kick over some tables. Maybe we need to bear some fruit, and maybe we need to pray some big prayers for the future. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that kind of work in our hearts and in our lives today. Lord, we thank you for this passage, and Lord, I pray that this passage would do its work in our hearts as well. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.